Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love in giving us your word and this gathering. Lord, would you help us to know you, to know you, the creator, and what we must do in our own lives, that we would follow you, Jesus, until we see you face to face. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're a Christian, or if you know anything about a Christian, um, it can seem like your life is pretty ordinary. Or the, the Christians that you know, their life is pretty ordinary. Maybe they're kind of kind. They make a lot of casseroles, or they dress really nice, and they say things like please and thank you. It just seems pretty ordinary. Nothing too special about it. And, and I know in... If you're a Christian and if you've, if you've walked with the Lord for some time, you think and you desire great signs and wonders. You don't want the humdrum of life like paying taxes and needing to shower and all these things. Like you want to see more. We want to see signs. We want to see miraculous healings. We want to see things fly from the sky. We want all these things. And we want this intense emotional experience all the time. We chase it almost like a drug it can be. I was talking to a man the other day and we we're just sitting chatting and he's talking about why, why don't we as Christians, like why can't we get bit by snakes and live? So a little context to that. There's a story in the Bible where that happened to somebody. So he thinks, why don't we see that kind of power in the church today? People getting bit by snakes, demons getting cast out of people. And maybe that does happen. I haven't seen it, but that's not the norm. That's not what you expect every day of your life because the Christian life is ordinary. We live and breathe the same air. We drink the same water. But the story in Genesis 24, it's showing us that God operates in the everyday life of people, in the ordinariness of people. And so we've been going through a a series through Genesis. Now, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and Genesis is another word for beginnings, or the beginning of things. This is the first book of the Bible. And this sets a stage for the rest of the Bible. The 66 books written by 44 different people over many generations. It tells one single story of how God created a good world. The planets, the mountains, the stars the trees, everything in it, and he created us. But his people, we his people, have rebelled against him. But God's on a rescue plan to bring the world back to himself, to save a rebellious people like us. And as we read through Genesis, we're seeing that story come to fruition. And as you read the whole Bible, that's the one story that it's telling. It's not a bunch of little books. It is one story where God is the author using people to write this amazing rescue story. And so as we read Genesis, we're noticing that God created this world and then this curse came into the world where people rebelled against God. And if people rebel against God, there's nothing but judgment on those who are rebellious. But then a few generations later, We meet this man named Abraham, and God makes a promise to Abraham. He says in chapter 12 that I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and through you, 
you will, you will reverse this curse and you will be a blessing to the entire world. And you think, how is he going to make this promise happen? How is this going to happen through Abraham? And so as we've been going through Genesis, chapter after chapter, we're seeing these amazing miracles of this good God creating the world, creating his people, the people rebelling and God making this promise, sending a flood, creating different languages. He dis- God destroyed a city and now we're, we're reading about Abraham. And how is this promise going to be fulfilled? And how he's going to use his everyday life to bring his promise to fruition. So again, we're in Genesis 24. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be here on your screen. You can listen or you can turn to it on page 18 in these Bibles which are in front of you. If you don't have one, these are a gift from the Northern Collective to you. We're in chapter 24. And it's, just, it's a story. It's an account of how Abraham, he has this son. And Abraham, he's thinking about this promise of how these many descendants will come through his family. And he has a son, Isaac. And for descendants, you need a wife. And so Abraham is now wanting to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And this is the story of how Isaac meets his wife through the everyday, normal events of life. In this story in Genesis, you're not going to hear of these miracles which you typically think of when you think of miracles. It's very ordinary, very normal, very everyday. So here we go. Verse 1, chapter 24. By the way, this is the longest chapter in Genesis. So I hope you brought some food to sustain you. Here we go. Verse 1. Abraham was now a very old man, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. One day Abraham said to his oldest servant, the man in charge of his household, Take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. So Abraham has this desire for his son to get married, but he doesn't want someone from their local place. Canaan, which is portrayed as being quite wicked, corrupt, and immoral. Uh, Rather, he wants his servant to go find a wife for him from his homeland. He wanted someone for Isaac who trusted God. It continues, verse 5. The servant said, But what if I can't find a young woman who is willing to travel so far from home? Should I then take Isaac there to live among your relatives in the land you came from? No, Abraham responded. Be careful never to take my son there. For the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house in my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you, and he will see to it that you find a wife there for my son. If she is willing to come back with you, then you are free from this oath of mine. But under no circumstances are you to take my son there. So the servant took an oath, by putting his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, he swore to follow Abraham's instructions. So Abraham is sending a servant. And how you kind of ratify a promise or how you say, I'm going to do this for sure, 
in this culture, in this time, you put your hand under their thigh. So we don't do that now when we make promises. You don't say, hey, you promised me. You know, you might do the pinky promise. I don't know if you remember doing the spit brothers thing, like spit in your hand and then shake on it. You know, you kind of make a promise that way. Nowadays, we don't say, put your hand on my thigh. Probably get in trouble. Not a good idea. Don't say it. But back then, that's how you, you made a promise, a covenant with somebody. Shake on it. So whatever it meant, in any case, the servant was binding himself to obey Abraham's request. He says, yeah, I'll do this. Let's go. Verse 10. Then he loaded 10 of Abraham's camels with all kinds of expensive gifts from his master. And he traveled to distant Aram Naharim. There he went to the town where Abraham's brother Nahor had settled. He made the camels kneel beside a well just outside the town. It was evening and the women were coming out to draw water. So this journey that the servant makes from this place called Hebron, it's approximately 900 kilometers. And for you Americans out there, it's 550 miles. It's a journey that would take in probably about 21 days. So three weeks, 10 camels. So the servant, by faith, at this point, he prays for guidance. He says, okay, I'm going to go look for this wife. I've traveled so far. I got all these camels. I got a job to do. This is his prayer. Verse 12. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, please give me success today in showing unfailing love to my master Abraham. See, I am standing here beside this spring, and the young women of the town are coming out to draw water. This is my request. I will ask one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. If she says, yes, have a drink, and I will water your camels too, let her be the one you have selected as Isaac's wife. This is how I will know that you have shown unfailing love to my master. So he gives this prayer, this kind of normal prayer. And you'll notice that he didn't ask for a miraculous sign. So I don't know if any of you are married or single and you're thinking, I, I, I'd like a spouse and show me a sign. Like I need like planets to start spinning around this person. Then I'll know for sure I should marry her. He didn't ask for something like that. He kind of just asked a pretty everyday, normal situation. He just sought guidance in the regular way. He said, okay, if I see this lady and she offers me a drink and feeds my camels, I will say this is Abraham's future, or Isaac's future wife. And so a scholar of Genesis, his name is Nahum Sarna, he wrote this about this situation. Nothing is more characteristic of biblical man than a profound and pervasive conviction about the role of divine providence in everyday human affairs. Basically he's saying, typical of these people of faith in God, they, they just trust God in the everyday. He continues in this quote, It should be noted that the servant does not ask for miraculous divine intervention or for a revelation that would designate Isaac's bride-to-be. He prays rather that the criteria of suitability that he himself determines might be in accordance with God's will and be effective. So first of all, he's looking for someone who trusts the Lord, someone who's very hospitable, loving, caring, not only of him as a stranger, but of his camels. So these are some criteria. I have a friend, and um, 
He's engaged now, but he has a list. It's like, a, it's like an 18-point list of like my future spouse. And if you meet someone and you don't meet those 18 points, he's moving on. There's that kind of slant. And then I had a roommate in Victoria, and his only test was, are you a girl? And so <laughs> that's not good enough. That's not good enough. But here the servant had a criteria. He, he used his mind and his rational every day, and he's looking for someone who's who loves the Lord, who follows God, who's hospitable. And so he made this prayer. And now we continue, verse 15. Before he had finished praying, he saw a young woman named Rebecca coming out, of her, out with her water jug on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, who was the son of Abraham's brother Nahor and his wife Milcah. Rebecca was very beautiful and old enough to be married, but she was still a virgin. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up again. Running over to her, the servant said, Please give me a little drink of water from your jug. Yes, my lord, she answered. Have a drink. And she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and gave him a drink. When he had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to draw water for all his camels. The servant watched her in silence, wondering whether or not the Lord had given him success in his mission. And then at last, when the camels had finished drinking, he took out a gold ring for her nose, we don't do that now, and two large gold bracelets for her wrists. So he's asked for a sign that, again, if this lady gives me water and my camels, this is the one. So it wasn't some simple sign. It wasn't like, Lord, the woman that that I'm going to marry is going to blink. And it's just some generic, no, no, this is quite, this is quite the prayer. And this is actually quite the sign he's asked for because we have to, we have to recognize this. If you were listening, how many camels does a servant have? He has 10 camels. And she volunteers to give water to the 10 camels. This is way more amazing than it sounds, okay? <laughs> wow, the camels, like, we don't deal with camels. Why is this so amazing? Because first of all, if you're going to get water in these ancient times, this well is like this huge hole in the ground, this big, like, crater, and you're walking down these stairs that they've carved out, and you got typically what is like a three-liter jug, and so you go down, you get your three-liter jug, and you come back up, and you get your water. So, 10 camels. How many gallons of water does a camel drink? Who's good at math here? I am, because it's in my blood. If you don't see me on the podcast, uh, it's because I'm Chinese. But I still need my calculator here. Okay, 25 gallons of water times what? 10 is 250. That's simple math. Very well done, everybody. So an ancient water jug held three gallons of water. How many trips does the servant have to make to feed all 10 of those camels? 80-something trips. 80-something trips. So it wasn't just like, whoop, whoop. Good, your camels are good. It was, no, 80 to 100 trips. Total stranger, 10 camels. I would not do that, okay? <laughs> so she made all these trips 
and it takes about 10 minutes for a camel to drink water. So I researched this, okay? I don't, <laughs> there's nothing in the Bible that's like, camels drink water for 10 minutes. I don't have a camel at my house. So, so camels, they take 10 minutes to drink this. So the math is, that she's there for about an hour and a half, two hours, just feeding camels water. And all the while, the servant, he's watching without saying a word, probably like, whoa, is this the one? Yeah, of course it is. Because <laughs> God provided and answered his, his prayer. There's, it's beyond a doubt. There could be no mistake here. So Rebecca was the answer to his prayers. What an awesome God. What an awesome God that he would provide this and show a sign and, and, and just without a shadow of a doubt, this is the one. We continue, verse 23. Whose daughter are you? He asked. And please tell me, would your father have any room to put me up for the night? I am the daughter of Bethuel, she replied. My grandparents are Nahor and Milcah. Yes, we have plenty of straw and feed for the camels, and we have room for guests. The man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. Praise the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, he said. The Lord has shown unfailing love and faithfulness to my master, for he has led me straight to my master's relatives. The young woman ran home to tell her family everything that had happened. So the servant prayed this prayer, and Rebecca was God's answer to that prayer. And how does he respond? Verse 26, the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He rejoiced, he praised God. What, what else could you, you'd be so thankful. I just traveled, what, 900 kilometers with my 10 stinky camels, and I, I prayed this prayer. I, I asked, Lord, I have this criteria. Is this woman here? And then Rebecca does it. He rejoices. That is the only natural response. If you think, oh, great. Nice to meet you, Rebecca. Business as usual? No, no. You rejoice. Your heart is glad. Your mind is glad because you have, you have walked with the Lord and he has been faithful and he has been good. And he responds in praise and worship. We continue verse 29. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban who ran out to meet the man at the spring. He had seen the nose ring, again we don't do this now, and the bracelets on his sister's wrists. And he had heard Rebekah tell what the man had said. So he rushed out to the spring where the man was still standing beside his camels. Laban said to him, Come and stay with us, you who are blessed by the Lord. Why are you standing here outside the town when I have room already for you and a place prepared for your camels, for the camels? So the man went home with Laban, and Laban unloaded the camels, gave them straw for their bedding, fed them, and provided water for the man and the camel drivers to wash their feet. Then food was served, but Abraham's servant said, I don't want to eat until I have told you why I have come. All right, Laban said, tell us. So in verses 34 to 49, the servant recaps everything that just happened. How, how Abraham sent him here and how he prayed this prayer and he was looking for this sign and he, or he was looking for this girl and, and God provided. And so 
That's the recap in verses 34 to 49. I'm not going to read all that. We're going to go to verse 50. So after the servant tells this story, verse 50, it says, Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The Lord has obviously brought you here. So there's nothing we can say. Here is Rebecca, take her and go. Yes, let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard their answer, he bowed down to the ground and worshipped the Lord. Then he brought out silver and gold and jewelry and clothing and presented them to Rebekah. He also gave expensive presents to her brother and mother. Then they ate their meal and the servant and the, servant and the men with him stayed there overnight. But early the next morning, Abraham's servant said, Send me back to my master. But we want Rebecca to stay with us at least ten days, her brother and mother said. Then she can go. But he said, Don't delay me. The Lord has made my mission successful. Now send me back so I can return to my master. Well, they said, We'll call Rebecca and ask her what she thinks. So they called Rebecca. Are you willing to go with this man? They asked her. And she replied, Yes, I will go. And so they said goodbye to Rebecca and sent her away with Abraham's servant and his men. The woman who had been Rebecca's childhood nurse went along with her. They gave her this blessing as she parted. Our sister, may you become the mother of many millions. May your descendants be strong and conquer the cities of their enemies. Then Rebecca and her servant girls mounted the camels and followed the man. So Abraham's servant took Rebecca and went on his way. Rebecca trusted in God's guidance. So she left her family and she moved to Canaan to marry Isaac, whom she's never met. And this might sound strange in our Canadian context, where we don't meet wives like that. It's like your dad doesn't send a servant and just bring some foreigner and you get married. But in other cultures, there is something like that. You have arranged marriages in cultures today. That may not happen now, probably meet your wife at the library, something like that, maybe math class. But this is a different time. And Rebecca trusted in God's guidance. And when the first people are reading this story, then a man named Roses Moat, when the first audience read this story, they would be amazed at how God orchestrated this scenario, how he orchestrated the servant's faithfulness, how he orchestrated Rebecca's desire to go and some of the unlikely events, like the whole camel thing, to bring about this marriage. They would have been amazed, like, wow, God is in control of everything, everything, the camels, the people, the water, the God of everyday life is with you. It is obvious. And as the readers are reading this, they would better understand that their existence, that they exist as a a result of God's guidance in their everyday life. As should we. Nothing is random. This is what the Bible is trying to tell us. This is what the story is trying to tell us. There is no randomness. God is in control of everything. And if you're here today, God has a guide an everyday guidance in that. And we should trust him and know that. Whether you're a believer or not, this is what Genesis is trying to tell you. If you're not a believer, that he is in control of your everyday life and nothing is random. He is guiding you. He's guiding you to himself. 
We continue. Verse 62. Meanwhile, Isaac, whose home was in the Negev, had returned from Beer Lahoirai. One evening, as he was walking and meditating in the fields, he looked up and saw the camels coming. When Rebekah looked up and saw Isaac, she quickly dismounted from her camel. Who is the man walking through the fields to meet us? She asked the servant. And he replied, it is my master. So Rebekah covered her face with her veil. Then the servant told Isaac everything he had done. And Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent, and she became his wife. He loved her deeply, and she was a special comfort to him after the death of his mother. The chapter ends with, and she became his wife. This is another key event leading to the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham, that Abraham would be a great nation, and there's nothing that anybody can do to stop that because God is in control. In Genesis chapter 4, we've seen that God is the great orchestrator of everyday life. He brings his wife to Isaac. He's protecting Abraham's lineage. God is making sure his own promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. God is in absolute control of everything in everyday life and is illustrated by basically every story in the Bible that there is one God. And out of this lineage will come someone to reverse the curse. That God protects Abraham's descendants for generation after generation through so many everyday events where it could have gone wrong, God protects it. And ultimately, we read about a man born in a place called Bethlehem by the name of Jesus Christ. And even though people tried to kill him, discredit him, he is God's promise to the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise in the very first book of the Bible in chapter 12. He is the promise to the world. He will reverse the curse of the fall, the curse that we are under judgment from a good, good God. And he loves perfection, and anything that is not perfect will be judged. But someone was sent to reverse that curse. Jesus became our rebellion. He became our sin. That by faith in him, he will exchange his perfect life, his perfect living for our rebellion, our unrighteousness. By faith we do that. We cannot work to do that. We cannot pay to earn that. Jesus has done it all. He is the promise. Genesis 24 and all of the Bible, it teaches that our lives are not ruled by chance, but by God. And God is always faithful to his own promises, always. But our challenge is to be faithful to him. He says, I have, I have made you. I have created this world for myself that I can be in relationship with you. Come home, he says. Come home. There is no other God. There are no other kings. And please pray for me, because on Wednesday, I'm going to be telling that to 400 kids at, or I don't know, how many kids go to Vanier? 
I've, I've been invited to an assembly at Vanier. I get to tell them about a king named Jesus, and there is no other king. And that's what I'm telling you, that's what the Bible tells us, and that's what we're telling the world. This is the king we follow. This is the king of everyday life, and he's fulfilled that promise. Through generations after generation, we see it fulfilled in Jesus. So this God is not this God that, you know, we say God helps those who help themselves. If you do a little, God will do the rest. God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That's not even a good idea. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who entrust themselves completely to him, as did Abraham and his servant. He helps those who cannot help themselves, that we admit how weak we are, how ordinary we are, how selfish we are, but how amazing he is. We are ordinary, and he is extraordinary. God uses ordinary Christians to change lives. There's an author, he said, yes, he, he uses ordinary Christians to change lives. One conversation at a time, one meal at a time, one act of mercy at a time. If I was making that quote, I'd say one poutine at a time. <laughs> That's how you change lives, people, and mess up hearts. So just take it easy on the cholesterol. So we got to be faithful in the everyday mess of life because, quite frankly, life is, is pretty boring, is it not? I got kids, they wake up three, four times a night. I got to feed them, and I'm tired, and I got to get dressed. And we got to fight against, we got to fight against that. We just need, just need more power, more serpent bites and, and all these crazy miracles. We got to just realize that God is the God of everyday life. And, and just admit that we are ordinary, but we serve an extraordinary God. We have to fight against the desire to be the next whoever and lose sight of what God has put right in front of you. Because I can do that. I can think, Lord, I, w- I, want, a, I want a big church. I want to be a fancy pastor that writes a lot of books and that people read about me when I'm dead. I want people to like me. I want to be successful. I don't want to be ordinary. I want to be, I want to be that special snowflake that like eats all the other snowflakes. <laughs> I'm not immune to that. I was reading an article yesterday. There's a, there's a church in the States. They're kicking out all the old people in their church to attract more young people. That's crazy, stupid. But that's their thinking. We need our church to grow. What's the problem? Old people. What should we do about it? Kick them out. That is anti-gospel. That is anti-Christian. That is, that is just insane. But these are the struggles I have, the struggle to be ordinary. And I just have to humble myself and think, God, you are extraordinary. You use whoever you want. And a few years ago, and I still struggle with this, by the way. It's not like it just goes away. But I was given this book in the midst of my struggling to be ordinary. And I was humbled by this book that a friend gave me a few years ago. And it was about a man named Tom Carson. Now, who's heard of Tom Carson? Nobody. Nobody. I have because I read that book. But here's the thing. 
He's a pastor who pastored in Quebec from the 1930s to the 1970s. And then his son, D.A. Carson, who's heard of D.A. Carson? Some people. D.A. Carson wrote a book about his dad. And the book is called The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And I thought, yawn fast. I don't want to hear about ordinary pastors. I want to hear about mega churches. I want to hear about people being saved at every corner on the street. I don't hear about church plants that happen every Friday. That's the kind of book I want. I don't want to read about ordinary pastors. But this book was incredible. It was just a man who was just faithful. Nobody knew him. But this is how the book closed. With these beautiful words to summarize Tom's life. This is what D.A. Carson wrote about his dad. Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. Clever. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text in the Bible that says, by this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you are good administrators. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition. But his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through his pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his children. But he modeled Christian virtues to them. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up. But his own commitment to historic confessionalism was in yielding and in ethics he was a man of principle. His own church circles were rather small and narrow, but his reading was correspondingly large and expansive. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer list. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on the television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man, he was, after all, a most ordinary pastor. But because he was a forgiven man, and he heard the voice of him who he longed to hear saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I've said this before and I'll say it again. I heard it in a song. We are nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody. We are ordinary with our struggles, but we serve an extraordinary God. And if you don't know him, you are here because of him. He created you, he made you for himself, and he's made it so that you can be restored in a relationship with him. He's using everyday situations, every moment, to give you an opportunity to come to him. For he is the God of everyday life. He has not abandoned us, he has not forsaken us, and he loves us deeply, so deeply, that he sent his son to die for us. Amen. Pray with me.
Heavenly Father, what an incredible thing it is to be known by you, that we can speak to you. Lord, as the words of Genesis 24 resound in this room and in our hearts, would we just know, if nothing else, that you've always been there. You are the God of everyday life. You desire us to be with you now and every day and forever. Amen.